Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. Coming up in this episode... I've seen data from American markets and all sports are declining there. I hope the big story is the heat. I can think of a few other things that could knock the heat off the, off the headlines. Ingesting like ice slowies is what they call them. That, that seems to work. But the moment testing was introduced in Kenya, they started to catch guys. Justin Gatlin is an extreme outlier, the likes of which 100-meter sprinting's never seen. There's a pink track. It's probably one of the hottest world championships we're going to have in years. It is the World Athletics Championships. And we're going to be talking a little bit about the uh, technology, the science, and some of the issues revolving around the World Championships in Doha, which kicks off in the next day or two. And uh, lots to talk about there. As usual, I've got Professor Ross Tucker along with us. Uh, morning, Ross, because it's morning our time in South Africa at the moment. Morning, Mike. Mike, looking forward to the uh, World Champs. It's always a highlight of my two-year cycle. <laughs> well, it actually, other than the Olympics, that is. For, for those of you who've been following this podcast for for a, almost six months now, we're on episode fifteen so far. And uh, when we first started talking about this podcast, it was about two years ago. And you and I did daily podcasts live on Facebook from your house using a cell phone and a long cable. And uh, that was our first kind of podcasting experience, wasn't it? Yeah, and we just showed up every morning and said, <laughs> "Did you watch the athletics last night?" Anything interesting happen? Let's talk about it. Add yep. a bit of insight. So we'll <laughs> plan is to do the same this year. Yeah. Uh, so World Champ starts on Friday. Um, you'll give us the weekend off, I hope, and then starting on Monday morning, we'll do our daily preview of the well, a review of the night before plus the preview of the night to come. But I guess today we're talking about more about the high-level, big-picture sort of stories that yeah. are likely to come out of Doha in the next 10 days. So one of the um, interactions we've had on Twitter, and I, I think to all of you that have been responding to us on Twitter, of course, our Twitter handle is SportsSciPod, Sports and then SCIPod, and you can uh, interact with myself and, uh, and Ross Tucker on that. Um, but one of the comments that we've had over the couple, last couple of weeks is one of our listeners saying, is, where's the science? They've enjoyed all the interviews. Um, but they want to have a bit more science. So what we're hoping to do today is bring a bit more science to our podcast. We kind of feel that with those interviews, there is some science involved, but we do have an opportunity, as we've had in the last month or so, to have interviews with people like uh, Nick Mallett um, and with Dave, uh, Peter Bills, um, which has been our latest last two podcasts. It really is an opportunity for us to talk to people who might not be sports scientists, but in a way they know more about sports science than most. Yeah, that's my. That's always been my philosophy about science is that it's like more about the way of thinking and less about the data and the numbers. But I also realized that there are so many people discussing sports, maybe not so many in track and field, which is a topic maybe worth discussing. Yeah. But in other sports like rugby and football and so forth, there are so many people who have an opinion and who are trying to offer insight. So what is it that we can add? And yeah. I think it's that way of thinking that way of trying to peel away the layers and ask deeper questions. That's what we're trying to bring. So, um, 
the human interviews are obviously cool for stories, but we must also work hard at introducing the scientific elements to it. And that doesn't mean data and numbers. It just means a way of thinking, I think. Yeah. So I thank you to Henrik Nystrom, who was one of our listeners who tweeted us that. So we're very aware that we want to focus a bit more on the science. So thank you very much for uh, tweeting us about that. So let's move on to the World Championships. And uh, of course, <laughs> I think one of the biggest stories, and there are lots of stories around this World Championships, and it started many years ago. Um, first of all, how Doha got the World Championships was somewhat controversial. There was accusations of people being paid off, et cetera, et cetera. We're not going to get involved in that too much. Um, but Ross, just we were talking about this in the in the preview to this podcast. How is athletics looking now? For me, as somebody who works with Runners World here in South Africa, it kind of feels like runners, like athletics and track and field athletics particularly, has kind of lost some of its luster. And we were trying to find out, looking at the Diamond League, has it got more popular? Certainly from what I see on TV, whenever you see pictures of the Diamond League, it just looks like, like the stands are empty. The same vibe around athletics is not the same as it was five, six, ten years ago. Yeah, I have the same feeling, but then I always wonder to myself whether the change is me. Um, because... Yeah. There are many sports that I see on television now that I used to be absolutely glued to. I remember waking up as a kid at five o'clock in the morning to watch cricket from Australia. Now <laughs> I'll catch the score on the news seven hours after it's done. Um, and that's a, that's a change in me, less than it is a change in, uh, or sorry, more than it is a change in the sport. So I wonder whether that's in play. Taking your world championships to these uh, what's the word? Let me be kind here. Emerging markets. <laughs> yeah, it's, is, a, it's a fair comment. Is a risk always for a sports governing body? I mean, we're seeing it right now. The Rugby World Cup is in Japan and it seems to have really taken root and it looks, at least from the way it's been portrayed, as having unbelievable energy and a huge success. But there have been failures like this in the past. And I was reading the other day that they sold 50,000 tickets across 10 days. Yeah. So we're talking five a day. Yeah. Some days, maybe two or 3,000 tickets in a 50,000 seater stadium. So it's probably not going to look good on television, yeah. which is a bad look. You said the Diamond League. I Some Diamond League meetings are still full to capacity. The Weltklasse, yeah. the Brussels Diamond League final, uh, London's looked really good. Others, not so much. I don't know what those numbers are, but I don't think we have to guess. I think in the last six or so months, the IAAF has announced that it will be making changes to Diamond Leagues to shorten them, to remove certain events that they believe to be, quote unquote, dead time in the program. Yeah. And the fact they're doing that tells you that there's a problem. Yeah. So the sport is in a struggle. I think most sports are. I've seen data from American markets and all sports are declining there. Mm -hmm. because life competes with sport. So it's no longer a question of do I watch baseball or football or do I watch athletics or rugby? It's a question now of do I watch Netflix yeah. versus sport versus playing a computer game versus doing something who knows what else. So yes, in general, sport is in a bit of a battle for a share of wallet, share of eyeballs, whatever you want to call yeah. it. And track and field, I think, is having to confront that big time. I think I think my criticism is for somebody who's you know covered athletics uh, for many years. In fact, my first commentating job was covering the World Athletics Championships in Athens in 1997. I remember doing that for a radio station here in South Africa, and it was my first chance to sit and talk about athletics all day. And I uh, got to know Lewin and Herbert very well, a 400 meter hurdler here in South Africa, who was a silver medalist at those World Championships. 
So athletics has been part of my life and, and certainly something I'm being very passionate about. But you know, it always kind of feels that unless you're in it, it's difficult to get into it. If, yeah. if, if I can sort of phrase it like that. So, you know, other sports, they're very accessible. They're very achievable. You know, eSports, of course, have, have grown massively. I still don't get that, to be honest with you. Maybe we'll do a podcast about that one day. But, you know, unless you're kind of a fanatic about athletics, it's difficult to spend all day or a couple of hours watching a meeting because even if you're watching it on television, there's lots of that dead time. There's lots of that space between putting up the hurdles and the you know, multiple laps of, of, a, of, a, of a track, that sort of thing. So it doesn't have that same kind of energy that you expect in the modern world where people kind of want a quick win. They want to watch something that maybe takes an hour or two. Um, and maybe, you know, this, these are ideas, maybe thoughts from people like you and I who are fans of the sport and legitimate fans of the sport that, you know, maybe there's almost like a shorter version like there is in cricket around track and field that can turn the sport and make it maybe a little bit more current. Um, I suppose that's what they're thinking about all the time, but I kind of feel they're not doing it well enough yet. Yeah, but it's interesting because of all the sports in the world, the barriers to doing it for some athletic events are lowest of all. Yeah. And so I don't know where you are listening to this in the world, wherever you are, but maybe you've heard of park runs, which have now gone through the millions and millions of people. I mean, there's one year every weekend where a thousand people will just show up on a Saturday morning and do yeah. a little jog around the communal park. Yeah. And that's happening all over the world. So. When you're watching a Diamond League race and you see the men's or the women's 5,000, they are doing exactly the same thing as you choose to do. Yeah. Yet people are not passionate enough about it or engaged enough to want to watch it being done. So there seems to me to be a disconnect between I do the sport, but I'm not a fan of it. Yeah. Whereas I reckon a lot of people watch rugby or football or tennis, but never play it. Track and field has the opposite problem. A lot of people do it, but never watch it. Yeah. So it's interesting. So I was thinking about this a lot leading up to this. Why am I so fanatical about it? Why will I plan my schedule around the Diamond League meet on a Thursday or Friday night? It's because I ran at school and I loved the sport and I loved the competitive aspect. And so now I want to watch it. So athletic solution is actually a long-term one because whoever's watching that sport in 2019 was a young aspirant athlete in 1996. So you've got to go back, what's that, 23 years yeah. to build your fan base for 23 years from now. So if athletics wants to survive, it had to be working in 2000. Yeah. And if it wasn't, that's why it's paying today, I think, because it's very difficult to convert that park runner and say, oh, you've just done a 27-minute park run. Well done. Why don't you watch these guys run at 12.55? Yeah. It's hard to relate to that. So... And, getting, and ironically, the IWF are considering removing the 5,000 of the diamond, uh, diamond League schedule because it's too long. But yeah. it's probably the most relatable that's, event. That's the most relatable one. When yeah. you watch Pole Vault, I mean, granted, it's <laughs> hell of impressive. I'd love to be able to do it. But I can't imagine, I can't imagine jumping two meters, yeah. let alone six. So mm. how do you sell something people have never done and yeah. don't really understand? It's a difficult proposition. So they have to... yeah, they've. they've I don't know what, when was athletics at its peak? I guess it was in the 80s. It seems to me to be, I'm, I'm biased, obviously, because it's only life, I can only evaluate what I've seen in my lifetime. But something seems to have been lost a little bit. Yeah. And they're trying to recapture that. And it's challenging because I think for the people, you know, they've got two strategies. The one is they have to retain people. And the other one is they have to get new people in. 
Now, what you do for retention is potentially show them more. So technology, show them information. I mean, if you have a conversation, so we interviewed Dom Scott on this podcast. In fact, she was our very first guest. Yep. We could have a conversation that goes something like this, you know, let's talk about that 10,000 final in Athens. The first 16 laps, they were clocking off low 68s and then Ayana went to the front and they dropped to 66 for two laps and then the pace settled and there was a split and everyone's going, what? Yeah. It means nothing to you. It means nothing. You can't see that. But if you've done it and you're familiar with times and you know the language of athletics, then it's really interesting. Yeah. So we're nerds like that, (laughs) but the rest, 99% of the world doesn't care. Yeah. And so you've got to, so how do you cater to your, your nerds, <laughs> your, your track and field geeks? Yeah. And we are among them as opposed to buying in new people. So it's a real challenge for them. Technology would be cool for the geeks. I'd love to see more stats, more data, more heart rate information, the way yeah. they show now for cycling. I mean, Formula One, part of the appeal is to see the technology. All right. Um, so you're having heart rate monitor straps, for instance, on a, 5,000 or 10,000 meter runner, I think would be absolutely fascinating to see what percentage of their heart rate they're using throughout the event. Exactly. And when do they peak? Yeah, but, absolutely but it would probably alienate the people they need to grow. It would be great for those who they want to keep, but maybe it would, alien- I don't know. Yeah. Another thing I've thought about is put a GoPro on a runner and pay him to run half the race with a GoPro. Yeah. You know, you're paying a pace setter to do half the job. Well, there are some cameras they've got in Doha, which apparently are being put into the blocks. So yeah. I think the cameras are actually sitting underneath the, the face of the athlete. So when the person is down in the blocks, looking down and kind of that focus face, there's going to be cameras there and you're going to be able to see the explosion of those sprinters out of the blocks. So there is some innovation happening. And I think that would be a, a great angle. I'd love to see the face of those top athletes as they're in the blocks ready to go. It would be cool. I'd yeah. love to see their faces while they're running. Yeah. And I'd love to hear their breathing. Wouldn't it, excuse me. <coughs> yeah, no. It's, I wouldn't mean, it, it be amazing to see with two laps to go, have a guy with a camera on his vest or on his yeah. forehead? It look funny, but whatever. Yeah. We've just we, we've done a study with the Stellenbosch Rugby Club where we've put a GoPro on the referee's head, and the footage you get from it is unbelievable. It it gives you like a it's a diff, it's like watching a different sport. Yeah, and you there. see things and you hear things that you otherwise are completely alienated or distanced from. So, I mean, you've seen the GoPro on bicycles in yeah. a sprint finish. Incredible. What an amazing experience to view. So, stuff like that could be good for attention and maybe bring a few new people in. But I think athletics, track and field, has to really think about the 2019 champs is one thing, but the 2037 champs, <laughs> 18 years from now, the guy who's going to be watching that is 12 today. And yeah. is he going to love the sport then? That depends on now. I think it's all about immersive stuff. They always talk about immersive in the tech world. And imagine a, a place where you'd have a treadmill that was immersive into a race of elite athletes. And then as they came past, you could that, that treadmill would speed up. To the, you'd almost be like in a, in a video game, but a live video game at your own speed. It's a bit like when you talk about like what they're doing in cycling now with Wahoo kickers and yeah. virtual training. You can actually race against um, people and and be in a tr- on the same road as somebody. If they could do that in running, I think it would make that immersive effect and that experiential effect. Yeah. Something that would bring it home. And Absolutely. you could be running on your treadmill or whatever it is at, yeah. at uh, 4 minutes 20 a k. And you could just apply a scaling factor of 70% to keep up with them running yes. their 62-second laps in a, in a 5K. But you could get a feeling. It, yeah, so that's, that's where it might go. The yeah. problem is 
It's the same place, basketball, football, soccer, tennis, even rugby. Um, they've got some tech in Japan now where they're able to take all possible camera angles and then create a composite that puts you on the field. I don't wow. know if you've seen that. It was circulated on Twitter and it's it's incredible. I mean, you can still see that it's pretty basic stuff. Yeah. But it's it's that's 10 years from now, that's how we'll watch sport. And so athletics might benefit from that. But I think their problem is really grassroots you know and one of the things about track and field is that it's so geographically uh concentrated yeah which it may and i mean i love watching the dominance of the west african african-american sprinters the east african distance runners the eastern european throwing athletes is one of the best things about the sport yeah but it makes it really hard to grow it because how do you attract someone to run in a marathon or 10,000 when there are 600 East Africans who are <laughs> potentially going to be better than them. It's not, yeah. it's global, but it's not. And that's challenging. Of which half of those under 14. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it is. Yeah. We'll, we'll get into some of the subjects and, and some of the um, sort of trends, I think, in athletics, uh, which we'll talk about very shortly. But let's uh, start off. We're going to tell you a little bit later on. If you listen to the end of the podcast, we're going to tell you why there's a pink track in Doha. Very interesting uh, story why they're having a pink, a pink track there. But let's talk specifically about track technology. And we don't want to go too much into that, but there's been a bit of talk about this Mondo track that they're using. Mondo, of course, this sort of the standard in terms of track technology um, over the last couple of decades. Track technology first happened in 1968 when 3M um, used the thing called Tartan, was actually a brand name, and then track technology with these rubberized tracks became part of athletics. But as this technology has developed, we, we've learned a lot about how tracks really do dictate the speed of events whether tracks are designed for the distance runners or whether they're designed for the sprinters. Is track technology we know, for instance, compared to the cinder tracks of old, is much faster. But what is the mechanics of a, of a, of a rubberized track in terms of performance? So two things. One is energy return or stiffness of the ground um, because obviously the, every time you land, you lose a degree of energy and the less you lose, the better. So that benefits everyone, yeah. but hardness is it comes with a with a price because the impact forces and the stiffness might increase the risk of injuries, for instance. And so for the distance runners, those very hard, effectively as hard as concrete surface isn't the best. Running 25 laps on that stuff, probably not ideal. Yeah. Whereas for the sprinters who are running 100 meters, that's exactly what they want. David Epstein, who we spoke to, on this podcast a few weeks back, um, had consulted with some biomechanists and they worked out that in the mile event, so that's running at 60 seconds a lap, the cinder track that Bannister ran on was worth about a second more per lap than the current tracks were. And so that's one out of 60. It's a shade, what's about, call it one and a half percent faster yeah. than cinder. I wouldn't know what the difference is between a 2019 version and a, say, 2008 version. But in about the late 1990s, I think they began to really focus on optimizing tracks for championships. Yeah. And the thing about championships is that they want world records. I mean, it's a big draw when you have a Usain Bolt or a Wade for Nickak is the most recent on the men's side. Yeah. Breaking a world record to win an Olympic or world championship gold. So how do you get that? Well, you make the track as hard as possible. That doesn't really help the distance guys because they're not running for world records in major championships. It happens, 
Yeah. Elma Zayana did the 10,000 world record in, in the 2016 Olympics. But that's a huge exception. Mostly the world records come in sprints. And so they make these tracks harder and harder to optimize the sprint performance. And then the other thing, of course, is the grip. They, they don't want athletes slipping. So yeah. Cinder moves under the foot. So there's, I don't know, half a percent slippage yeah. every single time you move through your stance and push off. These tracks, combined with the spikes they wear, minimizes that. Yeah. I think, I think I mean, I don't know whether they do this, but I'd imagine they probably thought about this, whether you actually have part of the track more designed for the distance runners and maybe part of the track more designed for the sprinters. In other words, that final 100 meters, for instance, or maybe 150 meters is a bit harder. So even if the distance runners are doing laps, maybe half that lap is a little bit softer than the, I, I don't do, know. Do they well, do that? I don't know. I mean, I I, I'd I be interested to chat to somebody at Mondo to find out whether they do that or not. You know? I'm not sure. Yeah. I remember in It's an 19- idea coming live. We'll give it to free to Mondo. They can yeah, sell it. Take it and run with it. <laughs> Uh, I remember in 1996, Gabriel Selassie picked up an Achilles tendon injury that he blamed on the hardness of the track in Atlanta. Yeah. And then in 1997, he refused to run in Athens initially because he said that he didn't want to risk injury on the hard surface because they were making these tracks too hard. Eventually, they convinced him and he won that, I think. Uh, it's a long time ago now. But that's the, that's the kind of thing that the distance guys don't fancy. Some of them will even run in in uh, normal cushioned shoes, not, yeah. not spikes anymore to try and save their legs a little. All right, so watch out when you're looking at that pink track down at the Doha Stadium, the Khalifa Stadium. Uh, you have a bit of insight as, as to what you're watching down there. So the big story around Doha, of course, is going to be the heat. Um, the, 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 the talk of the marathon is probably the, one of the biggest talking points, the marathon happening at midnight to try and avoid the heat. Ross, let, let's talk a little bit about the heat. This is going to be a big part of this podcast today. It's to some extent, in the sprint events, an advantage. But for the rest of the events, probably not so. Yeah, I mean, first of all, we hope the big story is the heat. I can think of a few <laughs> other things that could knock the heat off the <laughs> off the headlines. We'll but, get to those. <laughs> but uh, if the heat is the biggest issue in Doha, I reckon everyone will be quite relieved. Yeah. So so heat is a, always a problem for these major champs because they come at the back end of summer. And when they are in the sort of hotbed of... That's the wrong pun, but go with it, of, of a track and field, which is Europe. So when they have it in Paris or London or Norway, Oz, uh, where was it recently? It was in um, Gothenburg, for example, 1995. Yeah. They were up in Helsinki at one point when it rained torrentially. It's not a big deal because no. the hottest it gets is mid-20s. They're fine with it. It's in the evening. When they try and take these events around the world and they take them, for instance, to South Korea or to Japan or to Beijing or now Doha, then they suddenly invite these really brutal conditions. As we sit here, we're looking at the weather um, currently in Doha. It's 36 degrees. It cools off by midnight to 31 degrees. So (laughs) this is tough. And it's tough for a number of reasons. The obvious one is that when you are a distance runner, losing heat is a big challenge. Your, your thermal strain is enormous because the muscles are producing heat, your body temperature is rising. And we know that, you know, as you're sitting there listening to this, unless you're listening to this in the gym, let's assume you're not exercising, your body temperature is 37 degrees Celsius, give or take a decimal yeah. or two. When you exercise, your body allows itself to heat up. And maximal exercise, you'll push 38, 39, and you'll come quite close to 40. Yeah. Lab studies have shown that 40 degrees is more or less the limit. And it's at 40 degrees that the lights basically go out. Athletes get dizzy. 
they become confused, they sometimes collapse completely, lose consciousness, they lose muscle control. Uh, you, you've seen videos, I'm sure, of athletes running on hot days and they look like they've either had too much to drink or that they've been shot with a tranquilizer gun. Yeah. That is a classic symptom of having overheated. Yeah. So there's a limit to how hot we can get. The, the, and the problem is that when the environment gets too hot, then we can't lose heat anymore. So ahead of the 1996 Olympics in Atlanta, the world's leading exercise physiologist about heat is a woman called Bodil Nielsen from Denmark at the time. And she wrote a paper called A Fight Against Physics. And she basically outlined why the conditions in Atlanta would be almost impossible to run in. And the two key things are that when the air temperature gets to about 36 degrees Celsius, which is what it is right now in Doha, then the, the gradient between the athlete's skin and the air is reversed. So normally, your skin temperature is warmer than the environment, and you lose heat from your skin to the air. Make With sense? Sweating, obviously. This is just convection. Yeah. This is okay. not even sweat. Right. Sweat is, we get to sweat. So this is just convective heat loss. This is like standing next to a heater. Right. It's blowing air at 45 degrees onto your skin. You heat up. Same thing happens, but in reverse, right? As soon as the air temperature hits 36, heat loss from convection becomes basically zero. In other words, you can no longer lose heat through that avenue. And in fact, right. above 36, you start to gain heat. It's like standing in, in front of the oven. <laughs> right. The second way that you lose heat is through sweating. But sweat doesn't help if it drips off. So when you are sitting in the sauna and you are covered in sweat and you're wiping it off, you're not losing anything. It has to evaporate. That's mm. how we cool off. And the thing that determines whether sweat evaporates or not is the humidity. And so a combination of humidity and high temperatures basically shut off both of our mechanisms of heat loss. And as a result, we just gain and gain and gain and gain. So when that happens, the athlete has two choices. They can keep going until they hit the ceiling and then they'll be lights out or they have to slow down and accumulate less heat. Right. And so that's why heat compromises performance. It's also why when these events are held in such hot places, the two things that determine success are how well adapted you are mm -hmm. because heat acclimatization is basically how well can you lose heat through sweating and tolerate high temperatures. And secondly, how small are you? Because the smaller athletes tend to produce less heat when they exercise. Yeah. So it's no coincidence that marathon runners are small people. Yeah. It's not just because they're lightweight. It's because they actually therefore produce less heat. And on a hot day, a small person who's adapted will beat a small person who's not or a big person who is even if they're a worse athlete than them. How, how, how does the body adapt, though? I mean, what, what does it do and over what sort of time? In other words, if I suddenly go and spend two weeks in Doha, what will my body do to become more adapted? So the main thing that happens is that you start sweating earlier and you sweat more. And okay. so your capacity to lose heat and therefore control how quickly your temperature goes up changes. So there's some studies from the 90s, 2000s, where what they would do is they would bring these athletes into laboratories at 35 degrees and they'd make them cycle and they'd have to go until they were exhausted. And sure enough, on the first day, they would go for 18 minutes. Done. It's too hot. Their body temperatures were 39.6, 40 degrees Celsius, thereabouts. Done. 
By day two, they go for 21 minutes. By day five, they're going for 30 minutes. And eventually, after about eight to 10 days, they're going for the full hour, which is what they did before wow. in the cold conditions. So you, you so, can adapt that quickly. Yeah, your performance, remember, this is trials to exhaustion at a right. sub-max level, right? So they're putting them on a bike at 60% of max, go to an hour or, or bust. Yeah. <laughs> and it's bust, bust, bust up until day nine or 10 when you go for the hour. Wow. But the, that, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're back to normal. It just means that they are able to do the task that was set for them after about eight or nine days. So it takes, it takes at least that long to get some sort of semblance of heat adaptation is what I'm getting at. Yeah. Yeah. Whether they would be able to race at the same level. No, definitely. And that's why you're never going to see a, a marathon world record when it's 22 degrees Celsius. It's too warm. It's too warm. Yeah. I was going to say, is it too cold? No, okay. no. The marathon world records will be set from these early morning starts in October in Berlin, where the temperature is 14 degrees on the start line and 16 at the finish line. Right. Yeah. Uh, and if it's warmer than that, in fact, some people say that might be too warm. Theoretically, seven degrees Celsius is better. But mm. in my experience, when it's that cold, I, f I feel too cold to move. Yeah. Um, so there is some evidence that when you cool the skin off, your performance also gets worse uh, because, well, not, not the skin, but if, right. if your body's, if your body's cold, you can't move the muscle as much as you, as you could otherwise. So anyway, that's a long winded theoretical explanation. The, the point is that, that track, that long distance events are pretty severely compromised by the heat and therefore you're not going to see a 206 marathon no. time, even though they're starting the marathon at midnight in Doha to try and avoid it they're going to save themselves three degrees Celsius. Yeah. But um, the strategies are, if you're not adapted to it, you are in big trouble. Yeah. And Tokyo, by the way, is going to be even worse because Tokyo has got the same temperature in August and it's more humid. Yeah. Of course, Tokyo is Olympics next year. Right. Yeah. And so the, the Tokyo, the J Japanese championships were held the other day and people were wilting. Yeah. And that was held a month after the Olympics will be when it'll be even hotter. So, whoever has aspirations of winning these medals has to think very seriously about six months out how are they going to start preparing for the heat because one of the problems is you can't go to Doha a week ahead of time and expect to have your normal training and your normal adaptation and your normal final week's preparation because the heat is a stress on your body that is going to fatigue you before you even have an event yeah yeah so two two questions if that 36 degrees that you're talking about is a number, almost an absolute number, I mean, I'm digressing slightly here. If you are an event organizer and the temperature is 36 degrees, is that the cutoff point to say that's when temperatures become too extreme for exercise, for, even for, for the average person? Is that, is that Would that be a fair conclusion to reach that that temperature is... The reason why I'm saying that is because a couple of months ago, I participated in a cycle race in the UK on, the, on the hot, one of their hottest days I've ever had. And we were sitting in temperatures in the 42 to 44 degrees Celsius. And there was some thought about maybe they, this event was, it was too hot for the average person. So I've always debated, is there a mark that medical doctors can look at and say, when the temperature gets to that, it's time to call the event off? Yeah, so sports events and organizers have something called a heat stress index. And it's determined by a combination of the air temperature and the humidity. And effectively, this balance that I've just been talking about. And they do sometimes yeah. call the event off. I mean, it's, 
I can't see it happening for Doha. Uh, it happens, for instance, in uh, Melbourne every year when they have the Australian Open tennis and they decide to close the roof when the temperature gets too hot because athletes, tennis players have collapsed and they've had medical problems as a consequence of this during these games. Because when you're in a fairly enclosed stadium playing on this hard court surface and the heat is reflecting in and out, you're basically in a convection oven. Yeah. And uh, it becomes quite potentially harmful for the player. So, so they have actually cancelled, well not cancelled, they've postponed tennis matches in Melbourne. They closed the roof of the main arena, but all the outside courts are unplayable until it cools off. So that does happen. Uh, last year's Commonwealth Games marathon in Brisbane was held in fairly hot conditions and Callum Hawkins of Great Britain collapsed on a section near the end of the race. I don't know if you saw that. Yeah. It was a fairly dramatic event because he was given some assistance oh, yes. and they tried to As help him As he was coming down in. the final straight, yes. Yeah, he was crossing. It looked like he was crossing a bridge or yeah. running on a fairly big highway and he was sort of all by himself and he was in a really bad condition and he went down. And that, that seemed like a classic example of a guy who'd pushed himself to probably beyond that ceiling. And then you see these dramatic collapses. 1984 Olympics, Gabriel Anderson came into the stadium, took five minutes around the last 400 meters finished in 38th place another hot day in los angeles so they happen to quite dramatic effect yeah they don't often kill people but you know it's almost like the body's got this fail safe we're at 40 degrees and uncompensable heat gain it just says no ways I'm, yeah. I'm done and it doesn't look pretty but it's not often fatal but it can be and that's the problem right yeah. so there is such a thing as fatal heat stroke so okay so what we can expect is that it's going to be a factor in terms of the heat in Doha. But one of the interesting things that they're trying at Doha, they've got these special air conditioning system, which they have rolled out just over a year ago, which they tested and apparently has been quite effective. Now, don't forget the Khalifa Stadium is an open top stadium. It's not indoor. And what they've done is they've created almost these funnels of air conditioning pockets where they'll be able to blow cool air into the stadium. And they reckon that if the outside temperature is 40 degrees, by the time that these air conditioning pods work and these funnels work, they can get the temperature into the stadium, uh, particularly on the track down to sort of 26 degrees. So that's a that's a, a huge difference. And then once the events happen, so for instance, if you've got these huge whooshes of air coming into the stadium, obviously that will affect performances in terms of wind and I'd imagine for the field events as well. They're able to move those funnels so they can either point up or point away or be switched off. So it's an interesting, and it's the first time that I know of, and I'm, I'm pretty sure that this is true, that we've ever seen this, where they've really spent, I can imagine, a couple of million dollars just developing this strategy to make sure that the temperature temperatures are within a reasonable amount. So... Despite all the discussion we've had about the, the the heat today, the only event that is likely to suffer from it the most is probably going to be the marathon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Yes, there's no escaping from that. Um, and so what will happen with a marathon is the, the woman will go through halfway in an hour and 18 to an hour and 20. 
on course with 230 something, which is crazy slow for, for that level of athlete. The men will go through halfway in one hour nine, I reckon, 69 minute halfway, which is for those guys four to seven minutes slower than they might have done yeah. in, a, in a Berlin uh, or a New York, Chicago, London. So they will just adapt and slow down. I remember seeing data on tennis that when the temperature gets hotter, the points get shorter <laughs> because they just decide I'm not going to run for a 17 ball rally. I'm just going to go for it on the fifth shot. Yeah. So you get more unforced errors, the quality drops. And that's the same thing that will happen when they try and run these events at those temperatures. On the track, again, if, if that cooling system is effective, then it will take away a lot of the, the, the potential damage. But I don't, you never know, but I don't think that the fives and the tens are going to be that fast anyway. Because they're championship events. Because they're championship events. Yeah. And so Tactical. they'll... They'll go fast, slow, fast, slow. Then they'll get cagey in the middle. The, th the third quarter tends to slow down unless, and this is where I think especially the men's 10 and the women's 10 could get very interesting if if certain people run them because you get these tactical conflicts. So who goes first? Who wants it fast? Who wants it slow? So that'll be cool. And I don't think you'll see the heat affect them that much though. I think they would have happened the same way no matter where they were. Yeah, so that's the heat story, and uh, we're going to be interested to see what effect the, the heat of Doha has on these events, and uh, particularly on the marathon. And as we suggested, the marathon will be slow. Don't expect any world records, uh, particularly in the distance events. And uh, I suppose it doesn't really affect the field events that much, um, the heat. I mean, we talked a little bit about how it affects, how heat affects the sprinters. And heat, hot air is less dense than cold air. And I guess in the throwing events, that's an advantage to the throwing events. You should see better distances in throwing events. Yeah, yeah, sprints and, sprints and throwing events. They always say if it's cool and wet, then don't expect much from the explosive events. Yeah. Uh, so that opposite will be true also. So again, if there are going to be championship records, national records, and world records, which would be unusual, yeah. but that's where they are most likely to come, definitely, yeah. And again, there's no rain forecast at least at this point, and I'd be very surprised. There's never any it, rain forecast in Doha. If, if it is, it's a deluge for 30 minutes and, yeah. then, and then gone. But yeah, so I think I think we could see some very good performances there. The other thing that's happened this year is because of the heat, they've pushed the dates back a lot. This championship will be 27 September till the 6th of October. They are normally mid-August, occasionally late August, but often early. So we're talking a six-week yeah. extension so why is that important that's because the season didn't start six weeks later it started at the same time and it's been run for six weeks more so whatever period of peaking or performance targeting an athlete would have had to do is now six weeks longer and i think a lot of athletes will underperform because they get that wrong it's difficult to stay on a physiological peak for the extra six weeks that's a, that's a long time six it's weeks. a long time and that's yeah. The Southern Hemisphere countries often battle like that. I remember in South Africa, we used to have our national champs in April, March, yeah. April. And then you'd ask these guys to peak there to qualify and then hold that peak all the way through to July, August. And by July, August, they are wilting, declining and so on. You see the same thing, I think, from the athletes who do the NCAAs in the US because that's also very early and then four months later they just cannot sustain that peak any longer so there are going to be some interesting underperformances as a consequence i think of having managed the, the year 
badly. So the explosive events will be affected by that also. Yeah. Quick thing, uh, pre-cooling strategies. We used to hear about these things, um, you know, the last decade, every time they've had a hot event anywhere, they put on these special vests and all that sort of thing. Any evidence to suggest that it actually works? Because we see it in cycling quite a lot, yeah. where the guys will be warming up for a time trial in the place like the Tour de France, the Giro, the Volta, um, and they'll have these cooling vests on so that by the time they get onto the road, they they warm up, but their their core temperature is lower. Yeah, so the premise there is to get your core temperature down before the start. You don't want it to be down too much, obviously, because that compromises performance from the other direction. But you want to you want to create a bigger, call it a heat sink. So instead of starting at 37.8 degrees Celsius, I want to start at 36.8. So I've got one degree extra to play with. And the evidence shows that that does help a little bit. So you can... You can pre-cool in a number of different ways. You can have cold water immersion, which is not ideal because then everything gets cold. Your joints get stiff. I mean, anyone who's ever walked into the cold Atlantic Ocean is not ready to sprint for the next 15 minutes because your knees basically freeze into position. Um, but it has, it has been shown to be more effective for performance if it's done at the right temperatures and timing and so forth. The other way to do it is these vests, which you've seen, you've just mentioned, and it'll be interesting to see, because obviously they're, they're cooling the main stadium, yeah. but there's a warm-up track yeah. which sits adjacent to that and which athletes will use. Now, when you're warming up for your long jump, high jump, 100 meters, whatever it is, you're on that stadium, it's 35 degrees Celsius at 6 p.m. Are you going cool, to cool yourself while you warm up? Yeah. That'll be interesting to see who does or who doesn't. A lot of them will go and warm up indoors yeah. where they can have air conditioning and warm up at... 23. And then the other way you do it is you can ingest ice. Uh, so there are some studies. I was just looking at a analysis now comparing cold water immersion to ice ingestion for performance. And they reckon it does improve performance. I have doubts as to whether it improves it in elite athletes. You know, everything we've spoken about so far comes from research on not world-class athletes. I mean, they're yeah. not mediocre couch potatoes, but they're not elite world-class athletes. And Something that an elite world-class athlete has is an unbelievable heat loss capacity. It's part of what you train. So is that a physiological thing? In other words, they yeah, have... because they're constantly stressing their thermal yeah. system. I mean, when you go out and you do your 16-400s or your 8-1K repeats, whatever it is that they're doing on the track, you are doing the type of training that's challenging your thermal system, your cardiovascular system, your, your, your skin's ability to take up circulation to help you lose heat your, your sweat glands yeah. everything's constantly being challenged right to its limit mm. and so the elite athletes are more suited to handling this challenge than most people are so whether or not this pre-cooling works as well on them as it does on the guy who who isn't I'm not as convinced. Also, I think that there's elite athletes that don't have any fat. <laughs> this is that, yes. Reasonably speaking, we, we carry a little extra layer that keeps us insulated. So right. not so, ideal. So they're fitter. Yeah. Their cardiovascular system, their blood flow capabilities are better than most people's. Yeah. Their ability to tolerate it centrally, nervous system-wise, is is higher. So I'm not I'm not convinced that the benefits in elites are as large as they would be in the sub-elites, yeah. but I still think there probably is some. So I would imagine most people will try some method of pre-cooling or they'll just avoid the heat. 
So some practical advice. If you're living in a hot country and you are doing a, a 5K park run or you're competing in a marathon, if you were going to say to the average person, what is the best sort of cooling strategy for the average person, three things that they should do? Well, take, drink some ice or eat some ice. Is one of them, yeah. Maybe. So ingesting like ice slowies is what they call them. That that seems to work. There's a study came out of Western Australia. I'll give the name because you never know. Perhaps they are missing. Uh, perhaps they are listening. That's a, that's a pretty hot part of the world. So I'd imagine that they know a lot about cooling strategies back then. And I think you've got to look. To, you've got to look to the southern hemisphere to, to a large extent. I suppose East Africa as well. Southeast Asia. I mean, Southeast Asia. Yeah. Tokyo. Uh, Singapore. Fact, it's hot everywhere. If yeah, global warming has got anything to do with it. Pretty much anywhere you go. You, you can escape it if you head northwest. Well, the hottest day I ever had in my life was in London during that uh, cycle event. So, And I grew up in Durban, which is a very tropical part of South Africa. And uh, that, that certainly was the hottest day, or hotter, hottest few days we had in London over that time. So. so Zimmerman from Western Australia, University of Western Australia, published a study actually just last year where they compared performance in a group of cyclists who either did heat adaptation for 12 days or no heat adaptation but they ingested ice slurries and they found that ingesting the ice seven grams per kilogram so if you weighed 80 560 grams of ice was as effective for your performance in the heat as the 12 days of heat adaptation were so wow so that's interesting, that's interesting. i again i'm not convinced that an athlete who has spent two months exposing themselves to heat probably gets a much bigger advantage than an ice slurry gives but if you don't have the luxury of time then at least ingesting some ice slurry seems to maybe make that difference uh this idea of pouring cold water over your skin i think is a is a very short term if benefit because yeah. you feel better ultimately the decision to slow down is made based on how you feel yeah uh, how you feel is a function of how you are your your physiology <laughs> When you're 39 degrees and you're, you you know that something's not right, you, that's your perception of effort is up. Yeah. But if you can get that down through wetting your head and your your body and your skin, then by all means, there's no downside. I remember um, a few years ago, well, a few years ago, a decade ago, Alberto Salazar, who ran the Comrades Marathon here in South Africa in very hot conditions, wore a sort of ice neck, um, uh, I think it was kind of a neck, tie of some sort where basically he mm. had this ice pack inside his neck and then he would replace that and the idea was that as the blood flow came went up and down his neck he was cooling the blood as it went through his neck and mm. uh, he, he actually attributed his comrades win to that particular device yeah i'm not convinced by those i don't think that they're cold enough yeah. to do that job some animals incidentally goats have it where they have actually a network of blood vessels near the carotid artery that branches off and allows their brain temperature to be cooled independent of their body. So their bodies can get really hot, but their brains stay cooler. Uh -huh. They still have a thermal limit, but it happens. They, they're able to delay getting there. Humans don't have that. So this idea of cooling the neck gained popularity for that reason, because you can keep your brain cool. It's goat technology. It's goat, goat well, technology. We've got goat massage and goat yoga, so why not goat <laughs> technology? <laughs> so, I, but, but I remember with those things, I just... You know, I've tried that as I'm sure you have as well. Like, put a cold, wet cloth on the back of your neck when yeah, you feel overheated for about 30 seconds. Yeah. And when you're so hot and your body temperature is 40 and your skin temperature is 35, 36, that thing warms up to room temperature in no time. Yeah. I agree. So, I just think that these things are very short lived. Even, even pre cooling for a 10K 
And in fact, the study found it is that for the first two minutes of a 20 minute cycling trial, you're cooler. But after that, everything looks the same. So the ice ice slurry is at the moment the best form of cooling yourself down? Yeah. It stays colder for longer? Well, cold water immersion is better because it's the whole body. Right. Um, but it's maybe less practical. So ice slurry is accessible yeah. and it cools you off for, as I say, the first, call it two or three minutes yeah. of a 20 to 30 minute trial. After that, everyone's on the same, unless you do it over and over and over in the race. Yeah. yeah. Suck on an ice lolly at the every 5Ks in the marathon. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, we'll see what happens out there and some very good practical advice for those of you who live in the warmer climes of the world and uh, figuring out how do you keep yourself as cool as possible. We like air conditioning here at the uh, Sounds of Sports podcast. Um, we, that's how we keep ourselves cool. But yes. <laughs> Just on that, the World Cup goes to Qatar in 2022, football. Yeah. So they're going to have the same debates. If this part's still going, we will just rerun this one. <laughs> but the biggest problem there is the fans, not the athletes, because the athletes are conditioned. So, I mean, they're elite athletes. Football fans are not conditioned Football fans are not conditioned. And they're going to come over from wherever it is in the world (laughs) where it's going to be, okay, it's not going to be middle of winter, but low 20 degrees. And they're going to go to these fan parks in the middle of the day. They're going to have sunlight on them. It's going to be 36 degrees. There will be be fan casualties in the Football World Cup and none on the field. Soccer soccer fans are as conditioned as darts players. (laughs) Yeah, just, well, (laughs) yeah, worse. (laughs) Apologies to all the soccer fans out there. We and dots players. And then the dots players. Yeah. Let's move on to some of the, and we don't like talking about this all this much, but there has been a lot of controversy, particularly in the build-up. And Ross alluded <laughs> to it just a few moments ago about we hope that the heat's the only factor that becomes a talking point around these world championships. But we can't escape the fact that there have been, in this last week, there's been a German television network that uh, did a documentary on the Kenyans, um, basically claiming that there was widespread federation-endorsed EPO usage within athletics and athletes in Kenya. It's only happened in the last week and talk about will Kenyan athletes be available and be able to participate at the World Championships. Of course, the Russians um, Federation has been banned for a couple of years already, has had its ban reinstituted because there's further evidence of state-sponsored uh, doping. Um, and then there's been lots of other issues around the doping story, but it, it's it's really really messy. I mean, these are the things that really take away from the performances of the the, the the athletes because once you have all these doping allegations, I mean, talking about Kenyans, you're talking about the one nation that's dominating world athletics, um, and potentially there's a shadow cast over them now. Yeah, and that shadow has been growing longer and longer by the year because I can't recall exactly where it started, but the moment testing was introduced in Kenya, they started to catch guys. You know, before, I'm guessing around 2011, 12, testing was just not done there. You know, you used to be able to go to Kenya and escape the scrutiny of anti-doping. And I think they recognized that that was an issue. It's still an issue in many other places. I think Ethiopia is the same. You know, you're getting all these names coming out of Kenya, but I reckon that's only because the spotlight is on them. Yeah. If you swung that spotlight a little bit up and to the right (laughs) and you looked in Ethiopia, I think you'd find the same things. In fact, I think if you shine that spotlight anywhere in the world, you would. But the so I think what's happened is that the testing has exposed the problem. Um, and what you now have is a drip feed of athletes who are getting done. So the Olympic champion from Rio, Kenyan woman, positive. The world half marathon record until a few weeks ago, Kiptum, was caught just before the London Marathon earlier this year, positive. 
the Jebat, who was the world record holder in the steeplechase, wasn't running for Kenya, but Kenyan-based and training positive. So some pretty big names have been caught in the last two years. And now you have this documentary where you've got a man and a woman, say so they're part of the team going and it's a federation-wide issue and so forth. And it makes it very difficult to trust it, which yeah. I absolutely hate because one of the great stories in exercise physiology is what makes the Kenyans so special. You know, and I've written yeah. papers on this and people have written books on this about the long legs, the skinny, the long Achilles tendons, the altitude, the habitual lifestyle and so forth. And now you have this, well, maybe all of that was just us finding excuses and it's just unregulated dope. I don't think that it is. By I was going to say, I think I mean, they still are. For sure. They, they are extraordinary athletes, despite any aspersions that's been cast over them at the moment. Exactly. And I think that the doping problem exists because they are special distance runners. So I think people are going there and saying, well, we've got these drugs. Where should we use them for best effect? Let's find the best runners in the world and give them the best doping. I that's what's happening. I, I've got a theory about that. I think within within Kenyan athletics, if you are number 100 in the 5,000 meters and you know there's a whole bunch of athletes ahead of you, um, you know that particularly in Kenya where getting out of this socioeconomic situation that a lot of them are in, that, that they will do anything literally to get to the top level of the sport. And then Kenyan running is obviously one of those places that you can do that. So if you're able to have a bit of an advantage by of your competitors you might get onto that, that that world stage and so it might be even an internal problem rather than an external problem within kenyan competition within kenyan athletes yeah i think that's true and i think that as the as the world has gone in and, and effectively mined kenya for athletes yeah. it's made access to these drugs and the doctors more available and so it doesn't need to be a state-sponsored thing i think I actually think that the West wants it to be a state-sponsored thing because then it's easier to say it's only them, it's yeah. only Russia, it's only <laughs> Turkey. I don't think it needs to be that at all. I think an individual is far more likely to dope more safely with a much lower risk of being caught than a federation is going to have a statewide system. Imagine how many people have to keep a secret. And you know that saying, right? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> what's it three people can keep a secret if two of them are dead? Yeah. Like state-sponsored doping requires an almighty control that I don't think is present. Yeah. But one-on-one, -on -one, one guy working with his coach, his doctor, that's not difficult at all. Yeah. So, yeah, so I, th I, think, I think that the best runners are in Kenya still, but I think that those best runners are, are having – there's a significant doping issue going on there, and that's not unique to Kenya. Let's not also forget how many athletes from around the world go to Kenya – I mean, South Africa's had guys go. Um, Paula Radcliffe's gone there. Farah's gone there. And they, why? Because they want some of the Kenyan-Ethiopian magic. Yeah. The problem is now we're finding out what that magic yeah. might be. Yeah. So that's it, it's just really bad because the confidence in any performance yeah. is now going to immediately be questioned. Yeah. A Kenyan wins a gold in the next week and a half. Yeah. You will be looking and saying, I wonder if that's the guy I know. who admitted. That's what I hate. That's the problem. That's the thing that I hate the most. Yeah. Even if it's legitimate, I and mean, we hope that most of them are at the World Championships. Just a last comment on the on the doping, and we don't want to focus too much on the Christian Coleman, of course, the big favorite for the hundred meters. He <laughs> was um almost done, for want of a better word, for missing three failed 
was it three failed tests? Well, yeah. How it, does it work again? Three whereabouts failures. Yes, and whereabouts right. failures come in two flavors, basically. <laughs> one is a one is a filing failure, where you have told them you're going to be in location X, but you're actually in Y, and they find out, and so then you've then you get marked as a strike. And the other one is a missed test, which is where they've gone to actually test you in your designated one hour window. So every athlete has to tell the authorities where they will be. So for instance, I would say in my house between 7.30 and 8.30 in the morning every day, I'll be available for a test. Right. If they show up in that time and you're not there, that's called a missed test. Right. If they show up outside of that time and they discover that you're not where you said you'd be, it's called a filing failure. And so he had two of those and one missed test within 12 months. But the loophole was that a filing failure is backdated to right. the first day of the quarter in which it happened. And so because of that, one of his filing failures actually fell into the previous 12-month period, and so he's actually only got two. So it sounds like a loophole, but that's how the policy was written. Right. And what actually happened there was that the anti-doping agency didn't know its own rules. Yeah. Now, of course, he's claimed innocence, as you mentioned he has. And, yeah. and I, I, I think that one of the interesting things that I read about this whole story, they spoke to a couple of former athletes saying that when you're at that level of the sport and you've got two strikes against your name, you don't risk anything. He claimed it was all to do with the fact that the app didn't work or you put the wrong address and all that sort of thing. And as you say, there was a, a technical reason why he got away with it. But, you know, at that level of the sport, there is an enormous responsibility for athletes like 100-meter sprinters who must be in the – when you talk about limelight and doping, that must be one of the top disciplines. They should know that they're at risk, and therefore saying that, oh, I made a mistake, it just almost seems implausible. That's what so many athletes have said. And I reckon after your first one, you'd be so paranoid yeah. to get the well, second one that you would literally make it part of your daily routine that every morning while you're waiting for your coffee to brew, you check your whereabouts. Because I get that it happens. You know, you, you're you an elite sure. athlete, you pick up a mild hamstring injury or you feel a bit of tension and now you've got to go for treatment. But your treatment is a two-hour flight away, but it's an emergency, so you go and you forget. Okay, fine. Yeah. But if, you, if you're serious about it, then you're checking daily. I mean, we saw Jenny Simpson um, gave a pretty detailed account of how it works. U.S. anti-doping send you an email at the start of every week saying, Dear Jenny, this is what you've said this, your whereabouts will be. Can you please check and make sure that they're okay? You don't have to do much. You just have to reply and say, yes, all good. Or actually, I'm now in Phoenix. I'm now in New York. I'm now in Boston. I'm now in Spain. Whatever it is. Yeah. And it's just an email you have to send off. Now, when, when, when this is literally the biggest risk in your career, you can't I'm extremely suspicious of people who have even two failures, two missed locations, let alone three. You know, when we did our cheating in sports podcast, I did that spoof sort of seven things to seven <laughs> tips to cheat and get away yeah. with it. And number one was don't take a test, you won't pass. So if an athlete wants to dope, he literally has to avoid the testers. That's why these things matter, because it's literally the most effective way to cheat is you just hide until you're not going to fail it anymore. And how do you hide? You just tell them you're going to be in Phoenix when you're actually in, I don't know, New York. And blame the app. And say, oh, I, I, it's careless. I just forgot. Yeah. But meanwhile, you're getting the benefit of, uh, of some doping. So, so I'm not saying that that's what's happened, but that's why people make a big deal of these things. Still to come. 
So I think that there are going to be some extremely good contests. Justin Gatlin is an extreme outlier, the likes of which 100 meter sprinting's never seen. Right, so now one of the things that we love to talk about is uh, what to look forward to at the World Championships. And Ross, you're a fanatic track and field runner. There, there are post the Bolt era, and I think there's a lot of discussion about this. Usain Bolt, of course, I think participated in 2003 when he first arrived on the scene. We've seen him dominate the headlines, not only just in athletics, but of course across all sport. A big name in the sport retires in, uh, two years ago. Who's the next big thing? What's the next big thing in track and field? So Bolt was such a magnet for the spotlight that I think a lot of other people were left in the darkness when he was on the stage, Yeah, which is not good for the sport because as you see, now he's gone and everyone says, oh, it's a Bolt less world champs. What's the intrigue? I actually think that there are now more big names with more appeal collectively than there were before, but they are all still in the still waning shadow that was left by Bolt. So, for instance, in the 400 hurdles, men and women, you have potential world records at these championships. In fact, th those are the two events where I think world records are most likely. I'm never going to say are likely but because they're so rare, but I think that they could go. You know, the women's 400 record was set earlier this year at the U.S. trials by Delilah Muhammad, and she beat Sydney McLaughlin, who everyone thought would be the next world record holder yeah. and may yet be because then McLaughlin beat Muhammad in the final of the Diamond League. So those two will be racing for gold and a possible world record. I Again, you've got to get through three heats, well, heats, semis, finals. It's a tough schedule to then run a world record in your third race in four or five days. So yeah. don't put money on it, but it's going to be one of the big races. On the men's side, maybe even better, because in Carsten Warholm, Rye Benjamin, you've got two guys who recently raced in the same race to sub-47s. And that had never been done before. Um, they're just outside that world record, which belongs to uh, Kevin Young from 1992. Yeah. And that, so that could go. And there's actually a third guy, a local Abderrahman Samba, who's also a sub-47 guy. So there's a chance we'll see three sub-47s in one race there, yeah. which would be extraordinary. So the 400 hurdles have the most competitive intrigue, in my opinion. But you've got other guys like Noah Lyles is probably the surest bet in the world champs. Unless he, 200. Yeah, unless he yeah. unless he gets injured, he is so far ahead of anyone else that he I, that world record is not in danger. Bolt's 200 record, it might be in the future, but he's that good that he'll win this by six to ten meters. Yeah. Um. So he's a big star and he's charismatic and so on. The men's 400 is super intriguing. It's, it lacks weight for Nickak, which is a shame. So he was obviously. Olympic champ in a world record. He was, do you remember in the Olympics in 2016, they, I'm pretty sure they set it up, but Bolt had just won his 100 and he stayed on the track to watch Wade win the That's 400. Right. And it, it was sort of, it, it looked like a contrived handover from Bolt to Fenikak as the next big name. Yeah. They want the superstar. And Fenikak became, he was the face of the 2017 world champs. He won that. And then he did his ACL, and he hasn't been back since. ACL is the knee, huh? Yeah, so it's the anterior cruciate ligament yeah. of the knee, playing in a, in a sort of curtain-raiser touch rugby match here in Cape Town. Yeah, crazy. Which is just, I mean, tragic, tragic. for the guy's career. Shit. And I don't know, he was, he was going to try and come back, but he's had to push his comeback out. And I, I don't know. You know, we've seen rugby players recover, 
you know, but that's like replacing a damaged fender on a Land Rover. <laughs> when you have a 400 meter guy who's at that level of human performance doing an ACL and you've got to fix that, I, I don't know whether you ever come back the way you were before. Yeah. Time will tell, I hope, but it doesn't look good for him. So, yeah. But the men's 400, you've got Michael Norman and Fred Curley who have been trading defeats. Well, Norman's been undefeated except for US where he got beaten by Curley. So that could be a sub 44, two guys. And then the other interesting one is Karani James, who before for Nickak was the big thing. Yeah. He just ran a 44 something a week ago. So he's an emerging dark horse. Hadn't run the whole year until that. Yeah. So the, the men's 400 will be really intriguing. The distance races are always intriguing. The, yeah. men's, the men's eight with Nigel Amos, who was recently on world record pace to 600 and then absolutely blew a gasket, all of them actually in the last 150, will he try the same thing? So there's so much tactical intrigue there. Yeah. On the woman's side, uh, Sifan Hassan, uh, Ethiopian, but now running for the Netherlands, is going to do a double. I don't know which one, because the scheduling won't allow it to do the 15 and the 5, because they got them on the same day, which is nuts. So if she does, she'll go 5-10 or 15-10, which would be a... Uh, remarkable double to attempt a 1500 and then a 10,000 it'll be in the other order the 10 is this weekend yeah so there's some so there's, there's I mean there's some really good matchups here it's, oh, not, yeah. it's not those dominant performances potentially there's some great matchups and one-on-ones here yeah or not even much, one-on-ones pretty much every event is is I mean Lyle's you know if you bet your house on the guy uh, yeah don't because he might do a hamstring yeah or false start and know? of course don't forget that first round second round third you know sometimes third yeah. round in the hundred and, and there's a lot of processes that need to go through just to get to the final which is different from just a one-off event like a, a diamond league event isn't it yeah and people will an watch it and say oh what's the big deal but don't forget it's not 20 seconds yeah it's two hours because the guy's got to get up he's got to relax that morning he's got to head to the stadium he's got to do his normal warm-up procedures he's strapping or whatever else a little rub down then he's got to practice some starts and so on so he's he's full time for three days basically yeah. to win a 20 second race and a gold medal so it's it's demanding it's mentally demanding and emotionally and physically so you can't predict always how that goes but he's he's come through u.s trials he knows the format and so on so i think they'll be well prepared for that so i think that there are going to be some extremely good contests and I think that there are people who, in my opinion, replace Bolt more than adequately. I mean, they're, they're not doing what he's done to the record yeah. books and so forth. But I think I think the sport put too much in him, Yeah, myself. Well, let's just talk about his specialty event, the Andrew Meters. Um, that's probably the biggest, one of the biggest stories because you've got the old guy against the young guy. You've got all sorts of doping allegations against both of them. You've got, so you've got Justin Gatlin, the defending champion, 37 years of age, shouldn't have any right to be at that level at, at his age, but yes. he's definitely being competitive. And of course, Coleman, the new up and coming guy, silver medalist last time at the world championships. Johan Blake's in there as well. Um, I mean, they're talking about Johan Blake you know, as the top as the top Jamaican, but he's not. You know, Jamaican with a dominant force a few years ago. Now they're no. less so. So it, it, the hundred meters, uh, kind of the the sign, or maybe the the opportunity to kind of see the new talent coming through, but also to understand that there's still that Gatlin talent there that was there before Bolt survived the whole of the Bolt era and is still continuing in post Bolt. Yeah, well, so Gatland. 
not Gatland, that's the Welsh rugby coach. Uh, <laughs> sorry, I got rugby on, my, on the brain. <laughs> Justin Gatlin is an extreme outlier, the likes of which 100-meter sprinting's never seen because he's as fast at 36. Okay, he's, I think he's slowing down now, um, and I think he's going to be he's going to be stretched to win a medal, in my opinion, at right. his chance. Because, I mean, age catches up with everyone, but less on him than anyone in the history before of, of this event. Because the peak for a sprinter is between 23 and 27. And I actually saw an analysis that my friend Roger Pilker did, he's, he's based in Boulder, where he looked at the top 20 or so in history, and they almost all peak in that window, 23 to 27. But Gatlin's got two peaks. He's got the one when he, when he won his <laughs> first Olympics in the Worlds, the ones for which he was subsequently um, banned for doping. Then he serves the ban, and he came back, and he was as fast. So he's, his, his profile looks like a camel hump. You know, yeah. he's actually got two. And then he's just stayed there into his mid-30s, yeah. which is remarkable. So when he beat Bolt in 2017, um, what would he have been, 35? He, that's That was extraordinary. I remember the crowds were booing and so forth because he was the villain of the piece and Bolt yeah. was the hero, which is also a narrative that really annoyed me um, because I... I mean, yeah, he got he got done for doping, but I'm not I'm not convinced about anyone is the good guy in the sport. You know what I mean? I'm cynical. <laughs> but now he goes again. Cynicism warning. Now he goes again and he races Coleman, who's got this cloud over him, not guilty um, of these three whereabouts failures, but is is guilty of three where well, let's Coleman is guilty of three whereabouts failures. It just ha so happens that they didn't all happen in the time period needed for a ban. Yeah. But there's still massive question marks. Yeah. So who's who's winning? You know, no one's winning. That. <laughs> this, I, I don't know. And then we're, we're, we're going to try and watch the World Championships with a less cynical view. I think no, uh, you and I have always agreed on that, that we, to yeah. some extent, we still love to enjoy the performances of the athletes. And we hope that as much as the evidence suggests that at least 30% of them are doping, we like to believe that the greats are not. Well, and our greats. Uh, we 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 act as though I like they, to believe we act as though they're not. I don't think I believe that. But ah. <laughs> but but, but the, so the one hundred is is the sort of marquee event of the sport, and that happens this weekend. So we won't preview it specifically, but we'll wrap it up on Monday when we do our our day afters. Yeah, and the same on the women's side. So the women, it's interesting because the women's side, Jamaica, have remained as dominant as ever. Um, Elaine Thompson. And Shelly and Fraser Price will probably fight out gold and silver. There are a couple of athletes who could scare them. Asha Smith of Great Britain has a viable shot, actually, of winning either of those. She could win the whole thing. But uh, if they've got their peak rights, I see them winning it. So then you go Jamaica, two out of the three medals. It's not going to happen on the men's side, which you know it used to. So maybe we're in transition a little bit in the in the one hundred, yeah. um, and then the two hundred. Will be interested. That's wide open because Shawne Miller Weibo is not running it. So yeah, I think the. So we we deviated onto the hundred there and we got back to the doping, but that's unfortunately, the way it's going to go with Gatlin and Coleman because they've now got these labels assigned to them. Um, state of the game, yeah. I suppose. Well, they get booed but, by the three thousand people watching. I doubt that. That's not the London crowd, you know, that loves a good pantomime. Um, Gatlin incidentally pulled up, didn't finish a 100 meter race two weeks ago, <laughs> maybe three now. I've lost track of time, and that would be a concern because if there's any issue there, if he had to take a week or two off, if he had to do rehab and he hasn't quite got that hamstring looked like a hamstring back to normal, then running a heat and a mm. semi and a final is going to put a lot of strain on an aging body. So 
And that's why I almost think that I'd be surprised if he wins it and he may not even medal. I don't know. We'll see. Well, we look forward to bringing you all the highlights and our reviews next week. And we're certainly going to try and analyze as much of the science as we can, but also analyze it, I think, as uh, athletics fans as well. And uh, despite everything we've said, really look forward to the World Athletics Championships every couple of years. I think athletics always feels to me like it's the purest form of sport because it literally is faster, higher, stronger in every aspect. So for me, it's always kind of it, there's no, there's not too many rules. It literally is who is the best person on the day, and uh, that's what the great advantage of the athletics championship, the athletics championships is. Yeah, Ross, final, final word from you. Uh, I'm looking forward to our daily inside lanes, inside track, whatever you want to call our little breakaway pods. We'll do those every morning, as we said, where we look back at the previous night, uh, and then we talk about what's coming up. And we'll try again. I'm sure some themes will repeat themselves. But yeah. stuff to look out for for me will be pacing strategy in the middle distance, how you spend your physiology, uh, the heat that we've spoken about today, does it make a difference, um, the, the tactics and so forth of the race, who positions themselves where. I remember from two years ago, those were those were really good discussions. So I'm very much looking forward to it. Uh, cynicism aside, I think... I think that it's actually in a healthier place than it was two years ago because there are now half a dozen athletes who are really exciting to watch in good contests. Yeah, And so I'm, I'm pretty pumped for what we do next week starting Monday. So don't forget you can uh, interact with us on Sports SciPod on Twitter. Um, Ross is very active in answering a lot of the questions that you might have on your Twitter feed. And uh, let us know what you think. Uh, let us know about some of the championship performances that you uh, want to watch and some of the highlights that you look forward to, maybe some of your favorites for the World Championships and anything else in this discussion that you want to interact with us about. We love having some feedback and uh, we often bring those uh, that bit of feedback back into the discussions and we particularly will do that next week on our podcast. Ross Tucker, thank you very much for your time. Oh, and just in case you thought that we had forgotten about the pink track, um, as far as we can tell, there's no real reason why the pink track has any performance-enhancing benefits. They just wanted to make sure that the Doha World Championships has a special look about it. That's the answer to the pink track. We hope we didn't disappoint you too much. Follow the Science of Sport podcast at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.